Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in part two of our Christmas series. This is called A Provocative Christmas. The question for you to get started with today is, what was your favorite Christmas tradition when you were growing up? Or what's your favorite Christmas tradition now? Enjoy. Keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I think Christmas often is supposed to look like this. But I think really, if we're looking at the real nativity of Jesus, it feels more like this. Darth Vader, anybody? No? Come on. When we talk about Christmas, we're talking about how it's subversive and it's provocative and it's revolutionary. And a lot of times what we've done with Christmas is we've domesticated it and we've made it clean and we want it on a Hallmark card and we want it to be warm and comfortable and hot chocolate. And that's good because who doesn't want comfort, right? We live in a culture that desires most of all security and comfort and we will do a lot of things to make sure that we get that. But the actual story of Jesus is one that forces us into maturity because it has nothing to do with comfort. It has nothing to do with security. It has everything to do with subverting the world, subverting the empires, subverting the powers that be. It is revolutionary in every way. In the very narratives that we like sing about and dress nice with and wear our best Christmas sweaters is like this deep propaganda going on by Jesus that says there's a better kingdom, there's a better gospel, there's a better reality out there, but it's going to cost you something. The very fact that it's in the gospel of Luke and not the other gospels, which we'll get to, is forcing us onto this road of maturity. So if we're going to talk about Christmas and we're going to talk about it as provocative and we're going to talk about it as subversive and we're going to talk about it as revolutionary, then what we need to take away from that is it's going to force us into maturity. So we need to talk about these things. We need to talk about Caesar Augustus because everybody loves a good history lesson at 10.51 in the morning. 
And then we're going to talk about the road because the Gospel of Luke is all about the road and the journey that you're on, unlike even the other Gospels. And then eventually we'll talk about the other three R's, not reading, writing, and arithmetic, but maybe something else. So with that, let's talk about everybody's favorite Caesar, Augustus. Here we go. Caesar Augustus uh, had a lot of titles for himself. So to put you in history here, Caesar Augustus comes around to like 30 BC, uh, 30 some years before Jesus. And Caesar is looked at as the Caesar who brings the Pax Romana to Rome, this piece of Rome. For a long time, Rome was in a lot of internal battles and they were a lot of, in a lot of external battles to try to shore up and make bigger their empire that they had. And so Caesar comes along right after the sudden death and murder of Julius Caesar. And so Julius Caesar didn't have any children, so he names his great nephew Octavian eventually to become Caesar Augustus to be the next heir of Rome. But at the time, there was these other people who had killed Julius Caesar, and they were still in Rome, and they were still trying to get power. So there was this triumvirate that was created, these three people, including, including Octavian, who came together to kind of dispel all the people who had killed Julius Caesar. But as with most people who have power, they only want a little bit more power. So he began to kill off all of the enemies of Julius Caesar. And then eventually, this triumvirate, these other two people that worked with Octavian to get rid of all of the enemies, they begin to have an internal battle with each other as well. And then eventually, it is only Octavian that is standing. And now he renames himself Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus begins to do some things, like much like the other emperors that have come before him, like Alexander the Great and Cyrus, and begins to give himself certain names as he accumulates more power. He also begins to tell a narrative. Excuse me, I got something in my throat, and now it is gone. that most of the time when powerful empires get power, they don't tell you about all the dirty stuff that they're doing, right? We don't put on the newspaper every day what our CIA is doing around the world. We talk about the good stuff. We talk about the peace of America. We talk about security and comfort and how high the stock market is, not the dirty, nasty little secrets that we're a part of. Same thing with every empire that's ever existed. And in Rome, it was no different. So Caesar Augustus comes along and he begins to give propaganda for who Rome is and for who he is. And he begins to talk about things like he is the savior of the Roman Empire. You're going to begin to notice that some of these words sound very familiar. Also begins to call himself the son of God. I feel like I've heard of this one before. Because what Caesar Augustus comes to do is he says, oh, after Julius Caesar was killed and after he came to power, he says, Julius Caesar is now God. He is my father and I am the son of God. Even begins to use this language, I am the only son of God. I feel like I've heard of this somewhere before. Then what happens is he begins to call himself the king of kings. There is no other king above him. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He rules all things. He brings peace because, of course, he is the son of God. Then he calls himself the Lord and supreme ruler, right? He actually uses a gospel. There's a Greek word called euangelion, which is the word for good news or gospel. And way before Jesus or the gospels were ever written, Caesar Augustus came around and he would share his euangelion to the whole 
Roman Empire. And any time that Rome was defeating other empires or other countries or other nomads outside of their region, the gospel would be proclaimed all through Rome, right? There would be drums and there would be celebration and there would be flags and the Praetorium would march through all of the region's streets and they would declare that the Son of God once again has saved Rome from all of its plight, that he's brought healing to the world. This all sounds so familiar. And that's incredibly important as we get into the Jesus story. And not only what did this gospel do, what it said is that there was peace in Rome, but secretly what it meant is that thousands upon thousands of people were dying bloody deaths on the edges of Rome. Rome was really good at violence. And then they were really good at entertainment. If only I knew another country that was like that. Hmm. Then he would also call himself the Pontifex Maximus, which everybody's Latin here is great, which means the high priest. All of these titles were used by Caesar Augustus before Jesus ever walked the earth. All of these titles were used by Caesar Augustus before the gospels were ever written. This is incredibly important for you to recognize before we actually read the gospel stories. Then when you read them again, we're gonna talk about how subversive it was that Jesus was taking on these titles that Jesus was talking about himself in a different way, that Jesus was a different kind of son of God, that Jesus was a different kind of king of kings, that Jesus was a different kind of Lord, a different kind of savior, and his gospel is very different than the empires of this world. And so if we don't recognize that these are borrowed terms, then we miss out on the power and the revolution and the provocative nature of what's actually happening in the Christmas stories, and we begin to domesticate them. And we said in here before, one of the reasons that we domesticate these subversive stories that are subverting powerful empires is because we live in the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. And we do not want a subversive Messiah. We want some comfort, my friends, and some security, my friends. And as Ed said so well a few weeks ago, we want blessing, which is our secret way of saying we just want to be comfortable right? We don't want to mature. We don't necessarily want to grow. We want all of these things taken care of us by this Savior over here, which is why even in American theology for the last 200 years, we begin to move away from a maturation of following Jesus, from a growth as a human being, from following the incarnate one, to over here, Jesus does the work with the blood on the cross, and he's good to go, so now my life must just be fine, right? And guess what happened? It didn't work. We got divorces just as much as everybody else. Our families were falling apart just as much as everybody else. There's no difference in addictions between churches and people who don't go to church. Why? Because the gospel was subverted, not by the Christians, but by the empire. And we'd rather choose comfort and power over subverting the empire's narrative of comfort and power and saying, oh, this thing is pushing me on the road to maturity. This thing is asking something of me, but this is a very different king of kings and son of God and gospel that's ahead of us. Listen to this actual writing uh, that's in Asia Minor. It says this, the most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. 
Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor, Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, sounds familiar, Caesar has fulfilled all hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of good news concerning him. This was written in 6 BC. The Gospel of Luke is not written until 70 AD or 80 AD. This was there the entire time, right? This was there for 90 years, and the early Christians, as they're retelling the stories of Jesus, are incredibly clever about what they're going to talk about. And so they begin to adopt and take over the narratives of the culture and say, what if there's a better reality? We live 2,000 years after the fact. So when we read the Gospel of Luke, we're not queuing into these things because we have Charlie Brown in our head. When you're one of the early Christians, when you're part of the early church, every word that's said here you say, oh, we remember the Praetorium marching through. We remember the people crucified. We remember the drums being beat. We remember, right, the territories that were taken over. And Caesar proclaims peace, but it is not peace Caesar is bringing, my friend, because the underguarding, right, narrative of every empire is fear. Maybe if I were to use this language, you would think of this Caesar in a different way. Rocket man, sad, fake news, beautiful wall, great. If the gospel narrative was written today, you would immediately know whose words these are, right? And we could pick any president, we could pick any time, but you would know the language of the empire. You would know the rhetoric that is being proclaimed. There's an underlying value of what we need is security and peace and power, and underneath that we provide fear. And that's what holds this whole thing together. And Jesus comes along and he provides a different narrative and a different language and a different way of being than the Caesars of long ago and the Caesars of today. And that's where we're going this morning. Before we get there, let's put a little context around the Gospel of Luke. So if you're all going to be good readers of the Bible, a couple things you need to know. There are only four chapters in the entire Bible that actually talk about the nativity of Jesus, the actual birth stories. You have Matthew, chapters 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 is really just a genealogy of just trying to connect, hey, here's where Jesus is from, right, from Adam all the way till now, connecting all of the Jewish roots of who this Messiah is going to be. In the, gen- or in the Matthew 2 story, it connects with what Brittany taught last week, which is all about King Herod, that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is coming to fulfill a lot of the Jewish realities that were already present about who this king will be, right? Jesus is fulfilling the covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is fulfilling what King David did. But now when you get to the Gospel of Luke, it's very different. Matthew is oriented towards uh, Judaism. Luke is much more universal. Luke is saying, we're going to use the story of the most universal empire the world has ever seen, and we're going to say, not only is Jesus co-opting and hijacking the narrative, right, and fulfilling the prophecy of Judaism, Jesus is going to fulfill a prophecy for the entire world. Notice that effect. I'm always fascinated when people read the Bible in a very concrete and static sort of way. Or when we talk about the Bible that it's just one message that never grows, The whole thing evolves, right? From one person to one family to one clan to one tribe to one nation, eventually to a person that dies for all of humanity. And Colossians says all things. That thing had quite an arc to it, right? 
where even Jesus had to say, see ya, Richard Nixon, I'm out of here, right? Not enough baby boomers for that reference. Here we go, right here. Bill and Ed, thank you. Thank you. Remember that president? Remember that president? Some people in this room were born during the Obama administration. Okay, great. Um, so, right, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a, a difference of what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm getting out of here. And it's eventually the story of the Holy Spirit is here for all people. Do you see how the thing got bigger? A God for just one human being to now a God for everybody. The nativity stories of Matthew are trying to make you understand what God's doing for Israel and Judaism to the nativity stories of Luke are trying to say, we are subverting the whole system and everybody gets included now, which is why Luke is the most masterful of all of the gospels of including women and the poor and the broken, even more the other gospels of saying, even when you think that you're out, because the Roman Empire or Judaism says you are not human being, I say you're in. How much do we need to hear that even in today's culture where we defied, right, and where we define and where we judge who is more human and who is less human? And the Gospel of Luke does amazing things. It is the Gospel, if you read it from beginning to end, it is taking you somewhere. It is starting off with this universal view of the Christmas story and it is bringing you eventually to Jerusalem. And the language that the Gospel of Luke uses from beginning to end is it keeps saying that Jesus is on the road. Because when you're on the road, you're on the move. And if you're on the move, you're not stagnant and static and concrete. It means that you are changing and transforming and maturing, which is why the Gospel of Luke is the only gospel that actually talks about Jesus as a little boy. Why? What do you do during adolescence? You mature. You grow. You change. The other gospels don't mention it at all. The whole narrative is very important to understanding where the Gospel of Luke is going. Now with just a little bit of that information, we can actually read the Luke story and we can say, aha, a different Messiah, a different Son of God, and a way better good news and gospel that's provided here. Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus, oh, I'm a good reader of the Bible now. I know about this Caesar Augustus. I know about his Pax Romana. I know about the peace and savior that he is of Rome. Issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Again, Caesar Augustus died 50 years ago by the time this is written. So you're living in Rome, but you know your history. Just like if I said Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you're like, okay, World War II, I'm kind of placing myself here. I understand what's going on now. This makes sense to me, right? This was the first census that was taking place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Pause. Again, you've, if you've ever been to any Christmas sermon, you've heard this stuff before, right? Jesus wasn't born in some palace, and he wasn't born as the emperor, as a king. He was born in a lowly little manger. And that's just not like a fact that we should repeat every Christmas. That's incredibly important. The gospel is not trickle-down economics. The gospel is always bottom-up. The gospel is always the lowest of the low have the most to proclaim. That's what's different about this gospel. That's what's incredibly unique about it. The powerful don't have all of the rights and the trademarks and the incorporations for this thing. 
the lowest of the low do. Why? Because sinners have always been the best at seeing God, because they have less of an ego to defend themselves with. They know who they are, right? Uh, we know who we are, and that's why Jesus, who does he always speak against? The religious conservatives and the best churchgoers of his days. Why? Because they're the ones with all the boundaries and barriers who aren't seeing God. They're the ones who Jesus is always healing blind people in front of them. And they're talking about, well, did you really heal the blind person on the Sunday? And he's like, can you see? This gospel is different with this Jesus. It goes on. And there were shepherds living out in the fields. The lowest of the low, the chronically homeless of 2,000 years ago, shepherds were living out in the fields. Nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you this gospel, this euangelion, which you've heard from Caesar before, and you know what Caesar's gospel does, and you know what his euangelion does. It kills other people for the sake of power and security. Take yourself away from the empire all of a sudden. What do we do when we want power and security? We hurt other people because we want to protect what's ours. And then we justify those narratives at time because people are different than us. And the good news that will cause great joy for what people? All of them, right? Today in the town of David, a savior, just like Caesar was a savior, has been born to you. He is the Messiah connecting with the Jewish narrative. The Lord, again, connecting it with Caesar. You're like, man, I'm really queuing in on this thing. This is so good, subversive. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly forces appeared with the angel. When your king of kings and your lord of lords and your Caesar savior comes, what does he bring with him? An army. How is this message proclaimed? An army comes. Does this army come with swords? It does not. This army pro comes proclaiming peace. How vastly different is this reality? How different is that than the gospel of Caesar? Even Jesus, in the gospel of Matthew, at the end of his life, he's being betrayed by Judas. The temple guards are coming. Uh, Peter goes and cuts a dude's ear off, right? And Jesus heals, and he says, Peter, if I wanted to call down 10,000 angels right now and deal with this thing, I would. But those who live by the sword will die by the sword. My gospel is different than the way of violence. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is what the armies of God proclaim. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Why were they amazed? because they knew all of the other reference points of the Roman Empire. And they just heard something completely different. You mean it doesn't matter if I'm a woman? No. You mean it doesn't matter that I'm a minority? No. A slave? No. Gay? No. This? No. That? No. Because the end of a world where God is only here or there is gone. A world where God is everywhere and always is coming. Now that's a gospel that I want to get behind. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen were just as they had been told. So I want to think about three things. I'm getting like old school, like Presbyterian roots here or something like that. I got three R's for you. I just feel like I want to vomit in my mouth just for saying that a little bit. 
So I just need to say that out loud because that's normally how I preach, but today is that day, my friends. You're welcome. The three R's are reflect, reclaim, and respond. If we're gonna enter into this road of maturity, if we're gonna join in with the birth of the Christ, not a birth that happens 2,000 years ago, but God birthing Christ new into us this year. That's the point of the story, right? Not a historical event that happened back there, but what could God be birthing in you now? What kind of road could you be taking now? How could you be subverting, right, and being a part of the revolution of this gospel now is what the Christmas story is inviting you into. That's the maturity that God has for us as we start on this road and move towards Jerusalem in these cycles of our lives because Jesus shows us the very fullness of who God is and the very best of what it means to be human. So if we're going to go on this road from Jesus' birth into this narrative, then there's a couple things that we need to do. First, we need to reflect. I think that's something that even in our culture, as we come into Christmas time, it's the busiest season of all. The seasons that are meant to be the holiest days of the year, we often make the busiest days of the year. Great, you've heard that, that's nothing new, but what do you do about it now? Jesus was not interested in all the things that you believed, interestingly enough. He was interested in the things that you practiced, right? So you can believe a bunch of things. I say this a lot, right? You can believe in the entire Bible and still be a prick. Uh, try living out just like the Sermon on the Mount and try being a prick. It's going to be nearly impossible for you. So Jesus cares about your practices and that you're actually on the journey of maturation and growth. And so is there an opportunity for you this season to sit down and reflect? What does that look like in your actual calendars? What does that look like in your actual life? Is that like the waking up early thing, the not taking the meetings thing? I remember three years ago, I used to put meetings back to back every hour, and then I realized I'm killing myself. And I said, I will schedule meetings in two hour increments. That gives me 30 minutes on the front and 30 minutes in the late, because we live in LA and you know someone's gonna be late, right? And I don't wanna rush them and I don't wanna rush myself. And that had to change the way that I was settled and be present in the world. It was a subtle shift. It meant that I could, instead of doing six to seven meetings a day, I had to do four or three. And I had to be okay with that. But the quality of me being present with people and now that allowing them to be present with me was a gift that's worth giving. That's just my schedule for my day. What is it for you? What's the way that you get to reflect about this invitation of maturity that Jesus is inviting you into this Christmas? How is Jesus inviting you into thinking about the subversive nature of this gospel that subverts everything from the empires of this world to our own personal lives, right? One of the things that I get obsessed about is like subverting and reflecting upon like the military industrial complex of the United States of America. That thing drives me crazy. Right? We have Pax Americana where we preach all the time the peace of the United States when the truth of it is, who gives more arms and weapons to the rest of the world? We do. Russia has the second most foreign military bases of any other country and they have 12. Guess how many the United States has? 900. We have a $658 billion defense budget and a tenth of that goes toward education and agriculture. Is this political for me? Of course it is because it was political for Luke. I should get fired up about this stuff. If I'm getting more money to bombs and killing people than to educating and feeding the lowest of low among us, I should be pissed off. And this isn't Republican and this isn't Democrat. This is saying there's a subversive gospel that we have failed to participate with because we'd rather be comfortable. And I say, no, my friends. That's just my little passion. Maybe you're gonna reflect on something else this holiday season. <laughs> That's just what I do with my spare time. If you'd like some additional articles, I'd be happy to share with you. 
and then I got to reclaim. If I'm going to reflect on some things, I got to reclaim. We started New Abbey, and people ask us all the time, what does New Abbey mean? I'm like, I, I think that the old traditions, the history, the faith of Christianity are still so beautiful. We just need to reclaim them. It's a new Abbey, right? An Abbey was an old community, a monastic community who lived life together and shared all that they had, right, for the reclaiming of this world. But how do we just say that in new and fresh ways? And I meet people all the time in this community who are like, I don't know if I can say Jesus. I don't know if I can call myself Christian, man. Even church, reclaim that word. Reclaim what Jesus means to you. Reclaim the word for church. Reclaim the word for Christianity. Because my Christianity has a subversive tone to the industrial military complex of the United States. And I'm proud of that. And when people think of me, I'm very fine that they think of that reality. And when people think of you, what is the subversive nature of the, of the gospel that you're telling them? You just got engaged. You have reclaimed what marriage is. Why? Because the world has evolved. Thousands of years ago, it wasn't evolved where two women or two men could get married together. It is 2017 and we live in Los Angeles. The thing has gotten bigger. And every day that you live your marriage and you live in faithfulness and love to that thing, you go out there and reclaim it for the rest of the world. I was not planning on talking about you, but thank you for being right there. What's the thing that you're reclaiming with your life? You gotta reflect on it, you gotta reclaim it. And then the Gospel of Luke doesn't let you go in anywhere without responding to it. Are you gonna get on the road? That's all that matters. We talked in here a few weeks ago that more and more millennials don't go to church anymore. They do CrossFit and SoulCycle. I think that's hilarious, that's awesome. And why do they CrossFit and SoulCycle? Because it's something that you can embody. And we lived in a Christianity where soul good, body bad, right? So already it's doing something for us. We're like, oh, this thing? Yeah, it is working, all right. Um, it does something where it de-authoritizes right, who the leader is, you're all equal in the room, and then most importantly, what churches do bad is we talk about the theory of Christianity a lot, and we sit here week after freaking week, and if all you're getting out of this place is the theory of Christianity, go home, and I will shut this thing down, and we'll give away our money and figure out how we open a CrossFit gym, which you should do, by the way. It's really good for your body. But what CrossFit and SoulCycle do is they don't talk about the theory of CrossFit and the theory of SoulCycle. You ride your little butt off, right? You lift weights, you move, you are reshaping yourself. If this space doesn't lead you towards that reality on this road to maturity with Jesus, we should not do it. But if we can come here and shape one another and live, not just believe, a better story of gospel and kingdom and Lord and Savior and reflect and reclaim and respond to this whole thing, man, I'm freaking into that. I am so preachy this morning. Come on. <laughs> you guys want to know my secret word that I say to myself before I get up and preach? You do want to hear it, don't you? I like to tell myself swag. Yeah. So. <laughs> It's pretty embarrassing, but that's what I tell myself. So whenever you see me getting up here, know that somewhere in my little head, there's a little 14-year-old self saying, swag, okay, <laughs> God invites us into this subversive, provocative, revolutionary Christmas. It's an invitation every year to allow Christ to be birthed within us in a new way, to subvert the powers within us and the powers of this world but we only move towards maturity when we're willing to take the time to reflect, when we can reclaim those things and we can respond to them in an appropriate fashion in our life. Find those same people around you and answer this question. How can you mature this Christmas season?
you need some time to reflect? Are there some things that you're going to reclaim? Maybe you're ready to respond in a specific way. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.